Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. In the mid-1800s, it was tough being a sick person, or a poor person, or an orphan. I mean, really any kind of person, unless you had some family money. And while the state of Massachusetts had laws in place meant to protect the indigent and or underage, it was tough figuring out how to humanely care for these people. So lawmakers got an idea. What if we built a building for the indigent? And to keep it from feeling like a prison, because it certainly would, considering it was a big building filled with people not allowed to leave without permission, what if we attached a farm to it and the people who lived there could work on the farm and the farm could sell produce to the surrounding community? It's a win-win, they figured. So in 1853, a builder named Albert Courier was tapped to erect what would be called the Tewksbury State Almshouse. In case there's any question, it risked feeling prison-like, by the way. Courier that year also nailed a contract to build a jail in Lawrence, Massachusetts. So the building itself was destined to be blocky and nearly impenetrable. Anyway, most people in the area didn't call the Alms House by its formal name. Rather, they referred to it as the State Pauper Farm. Read one letter to the New England Farmer newspaper in June 1853, quote, It will furnish potatoes, garden, vegetables, and milk. It will do more. It will furnish employment to a portion of inmates for a part of the year at least. It will furnish to invalids and those recovering from sickness ample grounds in which to take air and exercise, end quote. In short, it was a place where vulnerable people could go to get proper care until they were well enough to leave. But 30 years later, allegations began to surface that suggested The state pauper farm was anything but a win for its residents. Even the worst reputed prisons of the time couldn't hold a candle to what some were saying was happening at Tewksbury. Inmates were found to be dangerously undernourished. From a video by Haunted Lowell. Some were described as little more than living skeletons. They were dressed only in thin hospital gowns, their own clothes allegedly sold off by staff. Nearly 140 years later, it's tricky to discern fact from fiction in the case of the Tewksbury State Almshouse. One of two things happened. Either a state institution designed to help the neediest in society was wrongly painted as a terrible, abusive place, or it was a terrible, abusive place, and some powerful people successfully covered it up. So much so that you still can't find the truth today. If you know anything about the history of mental asylums in America, you know the stories are not pretty. Patients were lobotomized, experimented on, terribly abused. I mean, that wasn't isolated either. I could choose any one of dozens of hospitals for the mentally ill and find horror stories that would keep me up for a week. In fact, American Horror Story based a season on one such place. Wouldn't it be fun if we gave her a transorbital lobotomy? Crack that 
thick skull open like a walnut. The asylum in this season was fictional, and sure, the aliens and satanic possession storylines might seem a bit much, but a big reason that season was so terrifying is because enough of it was rooted in truth. So we know that about mental institutions. What's perhaps lesser known is that in the 19th and early 20th centuries, asylums often weren't just places for people with mental illness. The lines between being needy and sick were blurred all the time. As such, the almshouses built to take care of poor people often also took in mentally ill people, or not mentally ill people who were deemed by someone somewhere to be mentally ill, even if they weren't. Tewksbury blurred that line straight from the beginning. And the place was built to accommodate 500 people. After it opened, it had 800 within a month. By the end of the year, nearly 2,200 people had been admitted. In the mid-1860s, a hospital was added on to try to lessen the load a bit, but the place was still teeming with patients. And the people sent here oftentimes had no one else. It was the whole reason they were in an almshouse to begin with. So no one checked on them. No one noticed if they disappeared or died. Many at Tewksbury were Irish immigrants who couldn't find work when they reached the country. While some were infants abandoned by their mothers, some were pregnant, unwed women. And then, of course, some were sick. Sometimes really sick, like with smallpox or tuberculosis. And all of those people were crammed together. So the healthy people became sick people as disease ravaged the place. It's always easier for me to tell a story when I have a person at the heart, which is tough with this story because so many of the people who lived at Tewksbury were so overlooked as to be anonymous. But one of its past residents ultimately became famous. So for a minute, let's talk about Anne Sullivan. The name might ring a bell because Anne is famous for having taught deaf and mute scholar Helen Keller how to talk. Keller had lost her vision and hearing after a fever as a toddler, And Anne became not only her teacher, but really her other half. Anne would help her read books by reading the books herself, then tapping Helen's hand to relay the sentences to her. She helped Helen speak by having Helen feel the vibrations of her throat and the shape of her mouth. This is Anne in a 1928 newsreel. After her seventh lesson, she was able to speak the sentence word by word, I, I am, am not, not dumb, dumb now. No. Anne had overcome great odds to become Helen's teacher. She'd been born to poor immigrant parents in 1866 as one of three children who lived. Two siblings died in infancy. From a documentary. At the age of five, and contracted an eye disease called trachoma, which severely damaged her sight. For years later, Anne's mother died of tuberculosis, after which her father abandoned Anne and one of her siblings, a younger brother named Jimmy. The children were sent to the Tewksbury Almshouse. Now, remember, this place was built to save people just like Anne and Jimmy, people who couldn't care for themselves, who needed compassion and help from outside of their homes to survive in this rough world. Well, that's not what they got. Tewksbury Almshouse was dirty rundown and overcrowded. Sullivan's brother Jimmy died just months after they arrived there, leaving Anne alone. Anne was tough, though. Like the stuff of legends tough. Her father Thomas was reportedly abusive, and she fought back. 
while at Tewksbury, Anne became determined to do whatever she had to to get an education and get out of poverty. She learned about schools for the blind and lobbied to be sent to one, eventually becoming a teacher of many impaired students before becoming the teacher of one of history's most celebrated educators and activists. The conditions of teachers' life at the almshouse were almost beyond description. Every rejected form of humankind, it seemed, had been deposited there. This is from a short film called Teacher, directed by Bruce Niebauer. She walked among the mentally and physically afflicted. Night after night, she slept with children who were sick or near dying. Death and disease were constant companions. Most babies sent to Tewksbury died. That's not hyperbole. In one year, the place admitted 73 babies. By year's end, 60 were dead. Agnes Calder was a long-term employee who testified during an 1883 hearing that she was in charge of up to 15 babies at a time. Her only assistant was a quote-unquote insane woman, she said. On the stand, Agnes was asked, what became of those babies? Her answer, they died, the most of them. Later, she clarified, I guess every one of the babies died. We did not raise any. Agnes seemed to suspect that something was wrong with the milk they were giving the infants. They would throw it up and then fall ill. Sometimes they would die within hours of their first symptom. Older children, like Anne, had better odds, though few had the kind of happy ending she did. Now, to talk about the allegations about Tewksbury that made huge headlines, we first have to talk about the man who elevated the claims. He's a controversial character in American history, not just Massachusetts, and it seems that some of the complaints have over time been minimized because some people disliked the messenger so very much. His name was Benjamin Butler, and he had once been nicknamed the Beast. Benjamin Butler knew what it was like to be dismissed because of a perceived disability. He was born in New Hampshire in 1818 with a condition called strabism, also known as strabismus, less formally known as wandering eye. That on its own might not have mattered much, but he also had these droopy eyelids that made him look, well, stupid. So he was mocked a lot, not just in youth, but in adulthood too. What made life really difficult for Butler, though, was the fact that he was poor. When he was a a little boy, his mother moved to Lowell, Massachusetts to run a boarding house of one of the mills in Lowell. And he eventually moved there to, first she sent him to school, but he moved there too. But he grew up in poverty and among working people. And that's sort of where his sensibilities came from. This is historian Elizabeth Leonard, author of several books on the Civil War era, as well as the upcoming biography, Benjamin Franklin Butler, A Noisy, Fearless Life. He certainly had a great ego. He was a very argumentative person, but he was always arguing on the, on the behalf of the poor and the underserved, and the elites came to despise him. Leonard spent years studying Butler, reading his letters and writings. Butler's mother, poor though she may have been, insisted that her son be educated properly. And Butler, despite his apparently mockable face, was smart as a whip. He became a lawyer before the Civil War, then a general during it. 
His reputation from the start was incredibly divisive. Because he erred on favoring the poor, he pissed off a lot of the rich. And rich people tend to have more power than poor people. So you can see where this is going. Before the war, it seems Butler didn't think much about the issue of slavery. He lived in Massachusetts, where slavery wasn't allowed anyway, and he disagreed with it, but he wasn't doing much about that disagreement. It's hard to equate something as horrible as owning human beings with anything in politics today, but you know how there are some issues important to you that some people just don't weigh in on because it doesn't really affect their day-to-day lives? Well, that was slavery for Butler. He was initially a Democrat and aligned with the party on most issues, so he tended to vote for Democrats. As such, he supported Democrat Jefferson Davis at the Democratic National Convention in 1860. I looked up the platform from that year, and man, is it wishy-washy on slavery. I mean, it basically reads, Democrats can't agree on whether slavery is a good idea or not, or if it should be addressed on either a federal or a state level, so we're just going to agree that whatever the Supreme Court decides is fine by us. In other words, we're divided, so instead of taking a stand one way or the other, we're punting this to the land's highest court. Jefferson Davis, of course, was not personally wishy-washy on the subject. He went on to serve as the president of the Confederate States from 1861 to 1865. Butler's endorsement has not aged well, but it's important to remember that it came before the war. During and after the war, Butler saw slavery up close and became an emancipationist. He was the first Union general to refuse to return slaves to their masters. And and this was huge. A huge thing to say, yeah. And he he felt kind of funny about it because he knew the government hadn't yet established a policy. He knew it might reach beyond what a general should be doing, which is really, you know, just fighting the battles and winning the battles and, you know, doing uh, doing his job. But it was an extremely important step in the progress of the nation towards emancipation. It wasn't just the issue of slavery that he became passionate about either. He became a staunch civil rights advocate. In talking to lawmakers, he described witnessing the sacrifice of black soldiers who fought alongside him and said, May my right hand forget its cunning and my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth if I ever fail to defend the rights of these men who have given their blood for me and my country. In 1862 came the Battle of New Orleans. The city was captured by Union forces, and soon after, Butler was sent there to keep order. So this is a northern guy who was now an adamant abolitionist moving into a southern state that had fought to keep slaves. And they were completely vulnerable, especially the women who were heading most of the households because the men were off fighting the war. Not only were these women alone, but they were broke because the Confederate currency they'd been using was now basically worthless. He was sort of out on this outpost trying to suppress violent, violent rebels there. And uh, he took a very hard line, which in the time, many people thought this is exactly what we need if we're going to ever suppress this rebellion. But of course, white Southerners, you know, they didn't think it was so great. He tangled with some foreigners. There were a lot of foreign consuls 
in um, New Orleans because it was such a cosmopolitan trading city. And he ticked them off. He ticked off a lot of people. Um, and they made all kinds of claims about him. This is where he was given the nickname Butler the Beast. He was abrasive and demanding and felt so strongly about emancipation and his dedication to the union cause that he passed harsh ordinances that punished people who, say, flew Confederate flags or claimed to have a union soldier's bones to display for Confederate loyalists. People like that were sometimes tossed in jail. The women of New Orleans were quite performative in making known their distaste for New Orleans' occupation. They would spit on soldiers or dump chamber pots on them from windows overhead. Butler wasn't having it. He issued what was termed General 28, which read, When any female shall, by word, gesture, or movement, insult or show contempt for any officer or soldier of the United States, She shall be held liable to be treated as a woman of the town plying her trade. In other words, if you spit on me, I'm going to treat you like I treat sex workers, which isn't very nice. This didn't just piss off New Orleans folk. It actually pissed off some union supporters, too. Some people wanted to ease tensions, not stoke them. And even Lincoln, the man who'd ultimately free enslaved people, was like, hey, Butler, maybe tone that down, eh? Plus, this order might have been passed with the goal of getting the women to stop spitting at troops, but no matter the intent, it gave power to men who could claim whatever they wanted to claim. According to the New Orleans publication Via Nola Vie, women in the city were sexually and emotionally abused by the men in control. Now, some complaints about Butler are certainly valid. For starters, he offered staff jobs to both his brother and nephew. The nephew declined because he didn't like Uncle Ben, but brother Andrew happily took the post and then exploited it. From an article in the Journal of the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, which is a peer-reviewed journal, quote, Andrew Butler had no problem working with his brother. Indeed, he benefited greatly from this relationship while serving in occupied New Orleans. He was probably involved in running cotton through federal lines, selling confiscated properties, or accepting bribes to halt such. Benjamin Butler admitted his brother was involved in gambling, the selling of racehorses, and hiring ex-slaves to operate abandoned sugar plantations. End quote. Andrew definitely was guilty of some things, Leonard said, like... Pocketing some money or doing things in a way that benefited him. But he was like a financial idiot and and Butler maybe was too indulgent of his brother. Like, he, it's his brother and he loved his brother and he sort of maybe didn't pay enough attention. Of course, what his brother did and the fact that he allowed it pissed people off. And rightly so. Nepotism rarely ends well, especially if the relative you hire is an amoral idiot. All of this gave the people who already didn't like Butler more ammunition to tarnish his character. It also helped fuel criticism that he switched from Democrat to Republican and then back again. I mean, that made his post-Civil War life as a politician especially fraught. After he returned to Massachusetts, he served in the House of Representatives. He wrote the initial version of the Civil Rights Act of 1871, better known as the Ku Klux Klan Act, and he'd been one of the managers of the impeachment of President Andrew Johnson. All the while... He kept bouncing between parties. 
And people just said, uh, it's Butler. He's just always trying to get himself into power and he'll do anything. He has no principles. And, and his perspective, and I find it quite persuasive, is no, the parties were constantly shifting in terms of their policies. And I had these vision, you know, these principles that I held about democracy and equality and, you know, uh, overcoming poverty and defending the working man and, you know, ultimately emancipation, although he didn't start out that way, but he became a very avid supporter of Black civil rights. And the party was just moving away. So, I mean, he was just really, you know, looking for the party that still represented his perspective. In 1882, Butler became the governor of Massachusetts, which is where we return to the Tewksbury State Almshouse. And you're probably wondering why I gave so much background on this guy. And there's a reason. In researching this story, which was recommended by a Crimes of the Centuries listener, I kept reading contradictory things about whether most of the claims of inhumane treatment at Tewksbury were real or exaggerated. One source would say how awful it was. The next would say that the allegations were bogus, that the place might have been dirty, but the rest of the stuff was just Butler playing politics. You might also have noticed that I've held off on spelling out the allegations in detail. There's a reason for that, too. Some of the testimony in the official record of the investigation Butler launched is incredibly upsetting. And I didn't want to use it in some sensationalistic way. But now, it's time to talk about what people said happened at the Tewksbury State Almshouse. As soon as Benjamin Butler took over as Massachusetts governor in January 1883, he zeroed in on the Tewksbury Almshouse. By month's end, he had already announced he intended to launch a huge investigation and would withhold public money from the institution while that was ongoing. Butler's ire wasn't based on first-person experience. He had fielded complaints from family members of patients as well as some Tewksbury workers who said that the powerful family that ran the place was not only abusive to its patients, but was selling dead bodies to area medical schools and pocketing that money. Now, they were legally allowed to donate some bodies, like ones for whom they couldn't find next of kin, but what was being alleged went far beyond that. From a March 13, 1883 story in the Fitchburg, Massachusetts Sentinel, quote, Of 2,800 deaths in 10 years, 580 bodies were delivered to the medical college according to law. There is no record of the disposition of the remainder. They are supposed to be buried in Potter's Field, but it is alleged that some of the graves contain no bodies, end quote. The hospital had asked for nearly half a million dollars to be budgeted for its upkeep. That translates to well over $13 million today. Governor Butler said, nah. A series of hearings began later that month, during which witness after witness laid out some damning claims. For example, Dr. John Dixwell, who by all accounts was a highly respected physician and philanthropist until his death in 1931, said that Harvard Medical School received regular deliveries of infant bodies, which they bought from an almshouse janitor for between $3 and $5 a corpse. 
When the infants were dissected, the doctors in training could tell that in many cases, they'd had no food for at least 24 hours before they died. Dixwell also said that pauper bodies delivered to Harvard Medical School were mistreated so badly that he had complained five years earlier to the grand jury for Suffolk County. Almshouse attorneys said, hey, it isn't illegal to donate unclaimed corpses. And also, the family who owns the institution can't be held responsible for what Harvard did with the bodies after they're donated. But then John Chase testified that he had worked for more than a year as a driver, that the owners sometimes pocketed up to $12 a body. That's a sale, not a donation. And some bodies had been pickled in pork barrels before transport. Oh, and sometimes families who asked for funerals were actually burying coffins filled with wood because their loved one had been sold without permission. The Alms House was operated by the Marsh family. Captain Thomas Marsh ran much of the show as superintendent, though according to an 1875 article, Marsh was, quote, flanked by several of his family, sons and daughters, who filled several subordinate offices, end quote. His son, Thomas Marsh Jr., was assistant superintendent. That Thomas's wife worked in the sewing room. The elder Marsh's wife worked as head matron. Thomas Marsh had a long history in Massachusetts state politics, having previously served as state treasurer. He was appointed to head the Tewksbury Almshouse by then-Governor Foster Furcolo. Thomas J. Marsh, who became superintendent in 1858, led the charge of increasing the institutional capacity and providing more specialized care for the inmate population. This is Ashlyn Rickard Werner co-author of a photo book called Tewksbury State Hospital, Images of America. Her CV says she served as a member of the board of directors for the Public Health Museum in Tewksbury, Massachusetts, so all of this is local to her. Between 1860 and 1880, many facilities were added, including infectious disease hospitals, a hospital for the insane, a reservoir, barn, and other outbuildings. I read Werner's book, which is how I came to realize that there's a big divide between people who believe the investigation testimony from 1883 and people who don't. Marsh got a bad rap due to allegations brought against him and the administrators of the state almshouse by Governor Benjamin Butler. Werner is talking to the Tewksbury Public Library here. In his inaugural address, he issued a scathing charge against the administrators of the Tewksbury Almshouse for gross misconduct and unsanitary conditions. A full investigation was launched with the help of the State Board of Health, Lunacy, and Charity, taking control of the almshouse as Governor Butler suspended the institution's trustees from carrying out their duties as of April 28, 1883. The investigative committee spent several months in the spring and the summer of 83, visiting the almshouse, hearing testimony, and examining evidence of mismanagement. According to Werner, the results of the investigation were pretty straightforward. The investigative committee ultimately found the main charges of the governor against the state almshouse at Tewksbury and its administrators, quote, groundless and cruel. Instead of appearing admirable, Governor Butler was actually labeled an embarrassment, having needlessly brought shame and humiliation upon the Commonwealth. This summation is pretty common, so I'm not picking on Werner, to be clear. I found versions of this repeated in several places. 
that Butler said the hospital was mismanaged and an investigation found it wasn't. But it wasn't as though the governor was pointing the finger. He initiated an investigation that brought forth testimony from multiple workers alleging these things. Charles Dudley, who had worked as a night watchman, testified that Captain Marsh told him to alert him if a building was on fire, but otherwise, don't see too much and keep still about it. Then he took him to a building in the back referred to as the Dead House, where he told Dudley that extra money could be made working there at night. Dudley said no thanks. The almshouse had deals with the Harvard Medical School and colleges in Boston to sell corpses for dissection. Normally, I wouldn't use a source like this one, titled Lowell's Ghosts, Goths, and Ghouls, because I prefer official sources. But in this case, the official story doesn't match the testimony which this video accurately summarizes. In some cases, newly buried corpses were dug up at night. In others, the body was never buried. Instead, a log was put in the coffin for weight. Sometimes there was no funeral at all. The body was simply put in a pork barrel and shipped to the school. Dudley said one man arrived to the almshouse drunk and was left in a cell without food or water. He died on his fourth day there. Dudley's wife worked as a watchwoman for quote-unquote the female insane. Women were kept in filthy cells, lying on dirty straw. A woman named Mary Barron was so thin she looked like a skeleton. Another woman, Margaret Hennessy, told the Dudleys she'd been kept in a basement cell with nothing but water for nine days. Dudley asked a co-worker if Hennessy's claims were true. The worker said yes because Hennessy was violent, so they starved her to reduce her strength and make her easier to manage. Another patient fell from her bed, so the Dudleys ran to get the head doctor, a man named Dr. Lathrop. Quote, We went and told Dr. Lathrop she was bleeding to death. Blood was gushing from her, but he wouldn't go to her aid, saying he was tired. She died that night of internal hemorrhage. End quote. Jenny Pope, who worked as a housekeeper, said children would scream all night from hunger. She started to keep bread in her pocket so she could feed them, but she said Captain Marsh told her to knock that off. Another night nurse decided to quiet the children by giving them morphine. She said she didn't care whether it killed the babies, as that was none of her business. Pope was joined by Agnes Calder in accusing a specific male worker with the last name French of abusing patients. Both said they saw him kick women in the back. One died six hours later. Another woman, age 70, was choked, they said. Charlotte Thomas worked at the almshouse for 10 full years. She said at least four times she saw healthy young women deliver their babies without any hiccups, only to die days later. She was sure it was malpractice. When a woman inmate would die, by the way, Mrs. Marsh would reportedly raid her closet. One inmate, a woman named Kate Furry, was put in a side room because she was sick. The next day, Thomas said she went to check on her and Furry was dead, her face gnawed by rats. Mina Davis, the worker who was supposed to be watching Furry, confirmed this in her testimony. She said she couldn't watch 76 patients and rats, too. William Muller testified to some of the most sensational of all the claims made. He said that some patients were skinned after they died, and their skins were tanned and used to make curiosities to sell. 
Some bodies were said to be skinned, and their hides sent out to be tanned. In one case, the tanned skin from a woman's breasts was found at a store in Boston being made into shoes. The committee determined that this was too ridiculous to have happened, so it must not have. Another piece of tanned human skin that was discovered had a tattoo of a crucifix, along with the name Charles J. Eklund and his date of birth. Eklund had been a registered inmate at the Tewksbury Almshouse. Eklund had been admitted in 1878. He died in August 1879. Despite this specificity, and despite a witness willing to testify that he had seen this tattoo on Eklund's chest before Eklund's death, the committee voted on party lines not to hear the evidence. It wasn't because they didn't believe it. They just didn't want to hear it, so they didn't enter it into evidence. There were still more complaints. Mr. and Mrs. John Carver found a little boy with no parents and took him to the almshouse. They couldn't stop thinking about him. So the next day, they went to bring him back to their house. But he was sick. He hadn't been sick the day before. And the shawl they'd wrapped him in to keep him warm was missing. Now, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts did ultimately call the allegations groundless and cruel. That's true. They pointed in part to testimony by Clara Leonard, a member of the State Board of Health, Lunacy and Charity, who said she had visited Tewksbury Plenty and never saw the stuff described. But a different Leonard, of no relation, this one's Elizabeth, the author of the Butler biography I interviewed, said of Clara Leonard, She's somebody who went in to try to challenge Butler's rendition of what was going on there. And even she said, yeah, it's, it's clean, but you know, they really could modernize. They could do, I've seen some things that are a little unseen. So here's somebody who was really trying to defend the administration of the hospital, of the, of the uh, almshouse. And even she couldn't, you know, squelch all of his criticisms. The report detailing the investigations is a fascinating read. It batches the critical witnesses one by one while accepting the pro-almshouse testimony at face value. See, Jenny Pope seemed like she personally disliked the Marsh family, so we can't believe a word she said. Charlotte Thomas might have worked there for 10 years, but she ultimately was fired for disobeying orders, so she can't be trusted either. It's true that the almshouse was selling bodies, but that was totally legal. As for that little boy found by Mr. and Mrs. John Carter, well, it makes sense he got sick the day after they left him at the almshouse. Quote, There was nothing strange in the sudden sickness of a child under a change of surroundings and diet. The clerk told them at their first visit that foundlings seldom lived. End quote. So, how can we know the truth in this situation? People who didn't like Benjamin Butler said he had alleged all this stuff as a political play. If he had, it backfired for him. Butler was not re-elected for a second term as governor. He went on to run as a third-party candidate for president, but Democrat Grover Cleveland soundly beat him. His critics said, serves him right, he made the Tewksbury investigation political. Elizabeth Leonard, the biographer, agrees sort of. It became political as much as everything is political. Politics and power, everything is sort of about that in some way. When people say now, like, oh, let's take the politics out of this thing. And I think you can't, because if politics is about who has power and how power is wielded, 
Well, lots of things are about that. As a journalist, I try to find ways to corroborate stories. And I've got to say, I find more that backs up Butler than disputes him. In this case, aside from the testimony, there's data. The State Board of Health, Lunacy, and Charity compiled information about 10 hospitals and asylums and almshouses throughout the state that's rather telling. In 1878, Tewksbury had 2,724 patients. That year, 306 patients died. That's about 11% of the patients. At the Wooster Asylum, the death rate was about half that, at 6%. The Bridgewater Workhouse lost 3%. Danvers Hospital, 4%. None of the others on the list came close to Tewksbury's death rate. I found this, too. On October 31, 1883, the Boston Globe correspondent who covered the months-long hearing wrote that it was the committee who had turned things political, not Butler. Quote, The majority devoted themselves solely to the two aims of degrading the governor before the Commonwealth and shielding and whitewashing the management of Tewksbury. And to accomplish these two ends for the sole purpose of their political effect, they hesitated at nothing, end quote. In other words, the committee's findings were bogus, or in his words, unfair and dishonorable. It was like revisionist history happening in real time, And it seems the official story stuck with some people. But the committee's findings were official, and I think that's why you can't find many official sources questioning it to this day. But you can find plenty of ghost hunters, like this one. At the unmarked cemetery of the Tewksbury Insane Asylums Cemetery. I'm talking to the people in the cemetery here. Is there anyone here? Is there anyone here that would like to talk? So which is it? Were all of Butler's witnesses testifying to nonsense for political reasons? Or had Butler, a man who challenged the wealthy and pissed off many powerful people throughout his life, simply been dismissed and denigrated by his political opponents? Well, if the allegations were largely bullshit, it seems worth noting that the Marsh family was still run out of the almshouse. After the hearings, a new superintendent took over, nepotism rules were created, and what do you know, the complaints and death rates went down. But the longer-lasting legacy of the investigation is that it sparked closer looks at almshouses and asylums in other parts of the country. Even though the Massachusetts state government downplayed the allegations, They were still drawn out for months on front pages nationwide. So even though Tewksbury wasn't the first controversial almshouse, the investigation into it raised a lot of awareness. And that awareness eventually led to change. Leonard said, I don't think it was a unique situation. It might have been a particularly hideous, you know, example of a not uncommon situation. Advocates in other states told Butler... We wish he would come here and sort things out here, too. Change was slow going, but going nonetheless. About a decade after Tewksbury, social workers at a national convention decided that children would no longer be sent to almshouses. Those who survived typically never found their way out of poverty. 
For all the criticism lobbed at Butler in life, he was widely mourned in 1893 when he died suddenly of a burst blood vessel. Business throughout Boston all but stopped for his funeral. Leaders in the Black community held service for Butler, calling him a true tried friend of the Afro-American and a champion of freedom. Famed abolitionist Frederick Douglass was counted among his friends. Those for whom he fought found him honorable. Those whom he fought against insisted he go down in history as the beast. Researching this story was way more complicated than I expected for reasons noted during the episode. There was no book detailing all of this, so I'm thinking about writing one. Big thanks to listener Amanda Bolden, who not only recommended the case, but sent along some resources. Another thanks goes to Elizabeth Leonard, author of Benjamin Franklin Butler, A Noisy, Fearless Life, set for an April release, but available for pre-order now. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessnetwork.com. This case was researched and written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod, and check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page.